0: You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple Biff Klobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay.
1: Good afternoon, Bobo. Good afternoon, Clifford.
0: What are you doing today? Anything exciting going on? besides our podcast with our amazing guest
1: (laughs) that that, this is the highlight of the day for sure. Nice.
0: Nice. Have you been doing anything interesting you'd like to share with our audience before we kick it off?
1: Uh, I went out for four nights and uh, was in a great spot. There had been something odd seen uh, six days before, but it was about seven miles away, but it was in the same Valley, like long Valley river Valley. And it's huge parcels, like big multi thousand acre ranches and for about 15 miles of roadway, there's only seven properties along the river, so it's nice. It's yeah, it's there's people like every couple of miles, but it's still pretty remote. Yeah, so you get you, you were out there for a couple, four nights. You said, did did you guys get anything? No, uh, coyotes.
0: Coyotes. Okay. Well, you know it's Bigfooting, right?
1: Yeah, I, I didn't expect to. And what they saw, that like, they're real insistent on what they saw. It had longer legs and arms, and it. Was on two feet, but then it dropped to all fours. They never saw the face profile, but they could—they thought they saw it, ears on top. But it had like a—they said it looked kind of like a. They thought it was like a gorilla kind of. They thought it was a gorilla, but with short arms. And it—it mm. it, it ran across the road in one leap. Like it was on two feet, it leapt, it jumped head first like Superman dive, hit, landed on all fours, and then sprang and dove like a diving into a pool, headed its arms in, over its head and dove into a thicket of just gnarly. They said like you, like they said, but well, you could have ran and jumped on it. You just sort of bounced off this thing, just plowed through it. Interesting.
0: Now, is this that uh, the place where? Remember a few weeks ago. Now, last week, I of course it was just me, and I interviewed a great witness. And you missed out on that one. You'll have to listen to the podcast yourself, Bubs. But a few weeks before that, I also had to do another solo trip because you were out in the field. Is this that location, or is this a new place? Uh, new. A new place. Okay. And when did this encounter happen with the property owners?
1: Two weeks ago, almost now,
0: or something like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. Okay, so stuff is happening in Northern California right now. A little bit of this and a little bit of that.
1: Yeah, I've been getting... getting, uh, And then uh, a couple of my coastal spots that have been pretty dead for me the last... I haven't had anything happen in the last year. I got uh, sightings from... I got put in touch with this hardcore group of fly fishermen um, around here in the Redwoods and up in Hoopa. They they work for Klamath and Trinity Rivers and Creeks. But these guys go on the Side like tributaries and hike way out in front of these pools that like with cutthroat and such, steelhead, whatever. And they, uh, they, they got they just burrow through the you know off trail for miles. And this guy got chased out. And we were supposed to go already twice, he's pulled, off, pulled out on us because he's just too afraid to go back. But he got he was uh, started getting knocks and hearing brushing, breaking sounds. And he thought it was just elk, there's a lot of elk there. And he's like, that's no elk. Then he realized it was on two feet and it started whistling. And then he got whistles from the other side of him. He never saw them, but they got big. And he said they were, they were bum-rushing him, but stopping just out of view and, like, making weird noises. And he was pan- in a panic, and he dropped his, you know, his uh, tackle box, like, uh, water, like, everything. He just dropped her, everything except for he had a 38-special snub nose, and um, that's all he kept, and he ran out. So we're trying to talk him into going back just to get his gear, but he keeps, you know, he goes, okay, like, we'll talk him then he. What's his offer at the last minute? Huh. Well, maybe you need to entice him out, uh, lure him out uh, with some fishing or something like that, you know? Oh, but while he was getting chased, he stumbled into, he said, he goes, first he like ran into like, it was a, like a kill zone. Like there was just all this old like deers and elk hide and bones everywhere. And they said like a big lean tube, but the branches were all snapped off and then you guess a big old growth redwood uh, windfall so you know that's that could be like 10 foot eight foot high whatever and then there's big branches coming down with all these boughs with needles uh, stuck all through it and he ran into that and he was he got kind of caught up in that and then ran out like he had a break through the side of it to get out and they chased him all the way back uh for like a mile so they got back to a road wow get that guy in the podcast i think everybody'd like to hear that story yeah yeah well that's cool so now we're scheduled for monday
0: Oh you're, going to go out the, oh, you're going to go out with them on Monday. I'm sorry. Wait, I was thinking, I was thinking we have a podcast Monday? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's my mistake. Well, at the museum, man, stuff has been coming in. You know, we. I told you, I've uh, been complaining lately that it's been a little slow since September with all the fires. Um, and we'll speak to our guests today about fires and their effects on Sasquatches as well. Um, but, yeah, since December, we got a couple reports out of a local area outside of uh, Estacada a little bit and uh, um, been kind of poking around that area a lot haven't found anything but a friend of mine did about 2 weeks ago they pulled a cast out of there i haven't seen it yet and we're still working on getting a hold of this guy um and just today, another uh, footprint find uh, complete with a cast came to me via email from outside Buxton, Oregon, which is on the um, you know the west side of town over there in the coast range area. So I'm trying to track that person down a little bit and learn a little bit more and see the cast for myself. But yeah, things are, seem to be starting to pick up a little bit, which is really nice after this drought we've had since the fires.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought I was going to hear more like, you know, displaced Sasquatches and but I didn't really have, I haven't heard that much. I mean, nothing around me, but I mean, I hear it. You know, people send me stuff from other places, but within like an hour, two hour drive of me, I haven't heard nothing like fire related, it seems like. Yeah, yeah.
0: I thought the fires would yield more. But I think that's probably a good segue because the fires, as everybody knows, have, have ravished the uh, the national forest land and BLM land and even a lot of private land as well. Um, and today we have a, a good friend of ours, people that we uh, Bobo and I have known for a, well, a woman that Bobo and I have known for a long, long time. I squarely put some of the responsibility or blame onto her of why I'm a Bigfooter at all. Um, But she's a Forest Service archaeologist from Stanislaus National Forest in California, a multiple-time Bigfoot witness, an advocate of science, and a good friend. So, Bobo, you know, or everybody else can welcome Kathy Strain to the podcast. So, Kathy, thank you so much for setting aside some time and spending it with
1: Bobo and I. Hi, Kathy.
2: Hi. Oh, I thank you for having me on. We, we listen to you guys all the time. Uh and so yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of you personally too.
1: <laughs> I'm shocked because uh, because Cliff and I, I'm like when Cliff several several times said we should get kept, I'm like, Oh dude, I want to bug her, you know. Like she gets to ask me this stuff all the time. And then when we, we uh, contacted you, and you're like, Yeah, we'll do it. I was like, And then now you say you listen to it before I'm like,
2: Whoa. Yeah, we listen to it all the time. We have uh our podcast, we have all your all of them downloaded. And then when we drive somewhere, like if we're going to see our grandchild or we're going to go see my parents then we listen to one going down and listen to another one coming back. So, yeah,
0: we all used to go out the field kind of a lot. And, and it just has not been the case with, you know, me living up in Oregon and everybody doing their own thing and being on the road to finding Bigfoot. And oh, there's a million reasons um, why we just haven't spent that much time together lately. So you probably just miss us.
2: Oh, I do miss you. You guys are a hoot in the film. And, and we usually have a lot of, you know, something happen at least, you know, when we're out. And, you know, you miss all that. You're having fun with Tom and seeing everybody. And um, yeah, it's been a long time. But when you talk about fires, one of the reasons why we haven't really been out as much as we used to is one of our most prominent, the, where we had the best, best luck was in the Rim Fire from 2013 and, and just hasn't recovered. So fires are devastating to the population for sure.
0: Now, now Kathy, like, uh, you and Bob and God, Mantra was there, and like, you just go down the list, and Tommy Amaro, like one of my earliest, I think the earliest social Bigfooting I ever did was something that you put together as like this sort of tutorial sort of expedition called Operation Odyssey. Um, and I was lucky enough to somehow manage an invitation. I I didn't even know you at the time, but I was thrilled to go and I learned a lot and I still carry a lot from what I picked up that weekend from you guys with me. And I, um, I and now I've become an advocate and a preacher myself of, you know, the scientific method and gathering of evidence and all that sort of stuff um, that uh, can you comment or talk a little bit about that initial uh, outing and what and how that came about and what you were hoping to give other Bigfooters like myself um, from going by, by going there. I didn't say that. Well, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um. Operation Odyssey, we we held uh, more than one, but the first one you were at, and, the, and you're right, Tom was there, and, and it was actually Mantra, myself and Bob, who um, developed it, but it came with a manual. You guys had a little manual, remember that? And we set, yeah, and we set up um, a crime scene, quote unquote, but it was really a Bigfoot scene where, uh, you, so essentially, let me back up. So. The reason why I wanted to do that was because I was really tired of taking reports. I was in the BFRO at the time from witnesses who's, who would like send in pictures or they would do something and, and they wouldn't have any scale in the picture or they wouldn't have written down the dates that they went out and did this activity. And there's just this, this gap of them wanting to provide us um, data, but it, they had no data other than what they vaguely remembered, sort of, kind of, on, you know, it might have been light, might have been dark. And it was just this opportunity to take my background and put it forward to Bigfooters to make science approachable so that they weren't afraid of when you say, well, did you do this? They go, oh, yeah, I have a measuring tape. I can do that. Yes, I knew to wear gloves. Yes, I knew to put the hair in a paper envelope instead of a plastic baggie, all those different things. And so that was just our attempt to to take people who we thought were uh, intelligent from uh, we found all you guys on the Bigfoot forums back in the day. And we said these people are clearly intelligent people. Let's let's provide this opportunity to them and see how it goes, you know. And so uh, during the day, we would do different kinds of activities, like how to measure casts, how to forecast, what's the difference between a stride and a step. We went through that, the fake uh, Bigfoot scene to see everybody went through differently. And what did you see versus what somebody else saw? Uh, what did you collect versus what somebody else collected? And then, um, you know, different things like that. And then at nighttime, we would call blast and, and you guys would go out and and look for Bigfoot and in a pretty, pretty cool area. It was, it was one of my favorite areas up there. It was in Oroville. Um, so we were in prime Bigfoot territory.
1: Yeah. You know, I wasn't there, but through that, you guys met Cliff and then you and your husband, Bob, it wasn't your husband at the time, but anyways, and, and Yammero were telling me, you gotta be, you gotta meet Cliff. And I'm like, ah, I don't know, man. You no, know, that's cool. I'm fine. And you gotta meet Cliff. You gotta meet Cliff. And you guys all vouch for us. So I said, Yeah. And then when Cliff came up to Humboldt, we hooked up, and the rest is history. No, it's your fault. Your fault, Kathy.
2: I guess it is, technically. (laughs) I know Bobo from this. I had to tell this story because it's just hysterical. So we were at the 2003 Bigfoot uh, Symposium that was up in Willow Creek, and it was the first time I was coming out, quote, unquote, as a Bigfooter. I was you know, on, on the Internet and stuff like that, but this is the first time I name, and, and, and potentially any other of my peers would know that I, that I did Bigfooting on the side. And Mantra and I were down at the uh, Patterson-Gimlin film site, and it was that tour that they were doing on the Sunday before the event was over. And all of a sudden, this uh, it, a two-wheel drive vehicle comes skidding down the hill slides into the parking area it barely makes it, it just goes wrong it's just slid into the parking area it, bobo flings open the door comes over and he grabs me and like shakes me and he goes you're my favorite bedfooter." footer and i'm like uh oh my god what's going on and i think matt moneymaker was in the car uh gimlin was in the car and maybe john green was in the car too but it was just crazy because i mean it was, Oh, Dimitri, yeah, it was just hysterical because I—it was this two-wheel drive car coming down this horrible road, and then just skidding right into a parking spot. It was great. It,
1: it was John Green's old car.
2: Oh, is that what it was? Okay.
1: Yeah, but I was driving it.
2: Yeah. Did you make it back up that hill?
1: Yeah, just. Uh, yeah, just get a little squirrely.
2: Yeah, it was so funny. Yeah, for people <laughs> who know, Kathy
1: was she because when she came out, she was one of the first person. First people with academic credentials, she was known as Kathy Moskowitz back then, but mm-hmm. she uh, came on board. She's been an archaeologist. She's the one that introduced, I think it was you that introduced it to the general public at large about the uh, Tule River Res yes. and the pictographs.
2: Yes. Yes. I was the first one to do that. Now, how did that
1: come about? Like, did, How did you hear about that?
0: I mean, you must have heard about it like at work. For, you know, work, you work for the Forest Service. You must have picked it no. up there, I'm guessing? Or
2: No, no, no. Um, so the... Hairy man pictographs are located on the Tule River Indian Reservation above, in the foothills above Portoville, California. And I was born and raised in Portoville. And so the first time I, I, I my first recollection of them is I, in, in high school, I was dating a, a gentleman from the uh, reservation and he took me there, and, but didn't really tell me much about it. He just said, oh yeah, you know, we, this is what it is here and kind of thing. And he, you know, it didn't seem to affect him much in the sense of, that he felt like it was anything of great importance in the sense, other than they were neat pictographs. And then uh, when I was in junior college, Portoville has a, has a two-year community college. I went there first before I went on to the university. Uh, one of my anthropology professors, Gay Weinberger, used uh, myself and my, I have a twin brother who's also an archaeologist. And so when we were her favorites in the class, and so she had taken us up there uh, to show us. And then she told me more about it, about, you know, what this symbolizes and, and stuff like that. Then, then I started my career, finished my, my bachelor's degree. And while I was getting my master's, I was the district archaeologist for the Sequoia National Forest on the Hot Springs and Tule River districts. And so when we were doing an excavation, which is, you know, a data recovery from an archaeological site, I had to go over to the reservation to talk to the elders about, you know, what were we going to do, we, we pretty much thought we were going to find human remains. And so I needed a course of action in case, you know, we did, what do you guys want me to do, blah, 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 blah. And I would go there at night, um, with, and have potlucks with them. And so in the, my uh, oldest son then was um, just a baby and uh, had flaming red hair, and I would bring him because I didn't have a babysitter, you know, and so I needed to bring him. And they fell in love with his red hair. And and so he had to come every time that I went up there and uh, they got to talking and they hadn't really the elders had not met um, someone like me before that actually believed in Bigfoot, was willing to listen to him. And they shared their stories uh, with me um, that had never been published before. And so um, I think that that was such an effect on me that that's kind of what I've enjoyed doing, talking with tribes about what their traditional beliefs are, because uh, a lot of academics just don't take it seriously. They just, you know, they put them in the same category as, um, you know, all all the coyote stories where coyote is a trickster. And it's just, you know, just something that the tribes do. do. They don't find significance in it and they don't, Think I, in my mind, that tribes really believe that. You know, I think they, modern tribes, quote unquote, dismiss that as being, oh, that's something that our people did before we could write, blah blah blah. You know, and so um, I just really felt it would be important to bring that information to light. That not only did people, tribal people, a hundred. 200, 300 years believe in Bigfoot and saw him and and registered it in their story, but they believe in Bigfoot now today. I mean, they have a strong belief and and to some tribes more than others, some tribes really don't want to have anything to do with them, but other tribes, it's a very significant part of their tribal beliefs and and for the Tule River, if he Bigfoot didn't exist, they wouldn't walk on two feet and so that's something they truly believe.
1: You wrote a book, um, what is that, Cannibals and Giants? I can't Giants, remember. Cannibals, and Monsters, right? Yeah. Yes,
2: yes. And that's a, a collection of traditional uh, Bigfoot um, stories from tribes from throughout the United States and, and Canada. And, and a good out.
0: seller here in the museum, by the way. We, we oh. sell the heck out of that book.
2: Oh, it's good, good. I understand now for my publisher, it's actually out of print. And so um, we're in talks about what we're going to do to get it back into print. So
0: Oh really? Okay, good. I I just had an order come in this past week. So I guess I'm a, I might I be uh taking the last water in the pool, so to speak, you know? Yeah,
2: it's getting getting low. I, I don't think it's you know, maybe there may be a hundred left, but there's definitely not the stock we had before, so which is good.
1: Save me one. I, I honestly I I was looking for mine. I can't find mine. I loaned out so many books earlier. I think I Kathy's, I thought it was in my first editions collection in my storage unit, but I didn't I looked for it the other day. I was gonna brush through before we talked to her and I couldn't find it. I was like, dang, did I lose it?
0: it is a beautiful book, by the way. Like if you haven't seen this book by Kathy here, it's definitely worth a look. Um, it's worth, well, that's a, that's a must have really. It's, um, it's a lot, it's a collection. It's an anthology, I guess is a good way to say it, um, of rather short stories, you have know, a page here, a half a page here, a couple pages there, um, from different tribes and different regions throughout North America. Uh, and all of these stories, every single one of them has something to do with Sasquatches. Like Bigfoot is basically the, the center, it's either the star or the moral or something of each one of these stories and the pictures, the photographs and it's, um, mostly historical, um, I believe, at least that's my take on it. Mostly historical pictures from the 1800s of traditional indigenous people in the uh, indigenous garb, um, and a lot of photographs of the actual locations where these things happened. Um, do you want to talk about that at all, Kathy?
2: Sure. That's actually one of my, uh, favorite topics is when, uh, there's actually a geographic place that is bigfoot story is actually associated with so like here on my national forest we have two areas one is pinnacle point cave and it goes with a story about uh, bigfoot was basically the native americans were in the cave and he was trying to climb up into the cave to get them because he's a cannibal he wanted to eat them and uh they instead took some uh branches and some uh pine cones, lit him on fire and then threw it into his basket. So a lot the caricature of a Bigfoot wearing a basket on his back is really profound through most of uh the Pacific Northwest. Anyway, the fire caught him on fire and he asked the 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 Native Americans, which way do you want me to fall? And so they told him the direction and I can't remember it off the top of my head, but um so he fell and where he died are called Bigfoot's bones and they're white marble type rocks that stick out of the ground in this very precise location um, in, in the Sonora area. And so that is a very important story to uh, the local tribe here there Miwok. And I had an elder that for many years before he passed, he would, after a meeting, and this is always the fun part, is after we have tribal consultations or meetings that when the business is done, then we, we talk Bigfoot and he for years would ask me to make sure that Bigfoot's bones were still there. And so, you know, I, I used to drive past the area all the time. It's easy enough to find. And um, I would, I would assure him, you know, now Bigfoot's bones are still there. You know, he's not going anywhere. And so, and that was important to him, you know, that we kept a, a watch on that location. And, and it's just, it's a cute I don't know. I just always thought it was just a lovely thing for him to ask me because he knew I would do it. He knew I believed in Bigfoot. And and I always wondered, you know, what happens if those rocks <laughs> disappeared? Does I mean Bigfoot got put back together again? I, I don't know. I never did ask him what what would happen if they weren't there. So yeah,
0: is so sort of like Squatchy Dumpty sort of thing, you know, like nursery yeah. rhyme. Yeah. Maybe,
2: maybe. But we have. But there's a lot of places like that, like the uh, there's a Table Mountain is supposed to be Bigfoot's bones um and it's it's a very interesting story because it is a lava flow that came over the the Sierra Nevadas from the Inyo side of the Sierras you know 600,000 years ago and there's other places like that they there's uh up in Idaho not far from Yakima there is uh some white rocks up there that is also Bigfoot's body um there's uh, lots of examples of that and i think that that's very profound because it, it's an indicator that the tribe themselves believe very much in that Bigfoot existed and it was important to them to to have a, an actual physical location associated with an event. And you don't get tons of that. You you may get things like eagle. Occasionally, there'll be a, a, a at, that's eagle's roost right there. You know, that's, this is where this story occurred that is important to our tribe you know it's occasional but i have found it um, much more much more frequently in bigfoot stories than in other types of stories so outside of creation stories creation stories always usually has a precise location where that event occurred
0: stay tuned for more bigfoot and beyond with cliff and bobo we'll be right back after these messages
1: Sonidos of our music.
2: Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories.
1: Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora.
0: I think uh, one of the things that interests me most about the, um, the native stories uh, of Sasquatches or really any animal. And I I think that the, any, any animal being included in this statement is, is important for the Bigfoot thing particularly is because, yeah, okay, we, we understand that coyotes perhaps aren't talking to eagles and taking bites out of the moon or wh- whatever sort of other mythological elements have been introduced into these stories. Um, and but at the same time, there's always facts. There's always behavioral um, details about all the animals. Okay, like coyote being a trickster, for example. Well, coyotes are really, really smart, that makes perfect sense, and when you take this this idea that coyote the coyote motif um, in the indigenous stories, like the, the coyote is always the trickster and he's always like fooling people and pulling the wool over people's eyes. Well, it's because coyotes are really smart. They wouldn't attribute that to like I I don't know something. An animal that might be dumb—I can't think of one off the top of mm-hmm. my head. But you, you hear what I'm saying. And even at the um, end of the the Harry Man pictograph story, well, when the when the sat when the Harry Man had had enough of this nonsense, you know, he, where did he do? Well, he went out to the redwoods and hung out in the ferny areas and only came out at night and kind of avoided everybody because he was he was butthurt about the situation. Um, I, I think that the the animal behaviors that are subtly included in these stories are important indicators that they are based in reality.
2: Yeah, correct. I mean that—that's what. What is the point of having a story that's thousands and thousands of years old? Because that's how these—it's—it's it's oral tradition. So they're passed on generation to generation to generation um, it, for entertainment purposes. I mean, I'm sure they do have some silly, you know, stories that you know they c- told on once in a while, but. The tribes which you guys think about nowadays, like living on a reservation and there's dozens and dozens or hundreds of individuals that live on that reservation, that's a modern thing that's only happened since white people came West. And so in the past, that's not necessarily how those tribes lived. So often, like in this this location on the Sonora area... They would only come together briefly in the winter down to the lower villages. The rest of the year, they're out doing what we call seasonal rounds, going as the seasons come about. So spring, they're a little lower. In summer, they're trying to get as high as they can up in the mountainside, and then fall, they're coming right back down. And so, but those are small family groups. And so, the importance of everybody being together in one place outside of, you know, ceremonies or something to do with that is in the village in the winter. And so, that's when you have the opportunity to teach the youngs, young kids the, the traditions of your tribe, your stories that you wanted to pass on. And so, when you think about how valuable that time is, you know, you don't waste it on nonsense. You you have to take every opportunity that you have available to get that through to the next generations because they're going to have to teach it to the next generation and they're going to have to teach it to the next generation. And so it's critical to the survival of that tribe that they get that through. And so when you think about how profound that is, It's like, it's like going to church. You want to go to church for an hour, one day a week, if you're lucky. Um, And so they don't have time for nonsense. You just got to get the message through. So the kid hears it and then remembers it for the next time you have the opportunity. And so the value of that is is much more profound than I think than people uh, give it. I think they, they really do just brush it off as a bunch of silly stories that they, they told because they didn't have television or they didn't have a radio or whatever, you know, kind of stuff. But it, it is critical.
0: Since you work so closely with uh, the native tribes in the area, and you're, you're part of like the central Sierra Nevada mountains, um, have you noticed over your years of working with the tribal people and looking at the, the behaviors of the other animals that live in the same areas of tribal people, and also being aware that Sasquatches are also part of the local population there, have you noticed um, any behaviors such as like uh, movements or food resources or anything like that, um, that can be attributed to all three of those groups the human, the Sasquatches, as well as the animals. Um, and like you, I know you just mentioned one, which is what made me think of it like, you know, going up in the higher elevations when, this, when it's accessible, you know, because you can't get up to the higher elevations in the Sierras um, during a lot of the year. Um, what other sort of behaviors have you noticed from all three different groups in your particular area?
2: Um, I, in this particular area, it's really important where the deer her- herds are. And so we have um, some very Leopold, I can't remember his first name is now, but he's a very famous uh, biologist. And uh, his herd that he studied is on this national forest. and and it has a very precise round of what it does. And Native Americans, all their sites are in the same locations of where they they follow these this deer herd. So it was one of their more important, um, herds that they, that they used to hunt, and coincidentally, guess where all the Bigfoot sightings are on that side of the forest? They're all in alignment with what uh, that how that deer herd travels, and so um, I think that in a lot of ways, I've always attributed that at least in this area on the Sierra Nevada, it makes more sense for a Bigfoot to live in lower elevations in the winter because we do get a very heavy snowpack, and then as the as the seasons change, that it moves higher up into the elevations, and probably even goes into Yosemite and the great, we have a huge wilderness here, and then comes back down. And a lot of people don't know this, but the the, um, Sierra sounds were recorded on this national forest in in, in the wilderness. And so um, I, I did various talks with uh, different people we've always wondered if the really big ones um, are found higher up and and they leave the the less desirable lower but not like foothill uh, locations to the younger stupider ones because you know all the good food is up higher I mean I, I don't know but that's definitely one thing that I've noticed here and and, and in our sightings here at least are very seasonal that it's pretty unusual for us to get anything in the winter so I've always thought that they're somewhere but obviously they're not out. You know, crossing the roads or being anywhere where they could be noticed in the winter. But
1: what other foods do you, do you find them eating, like consistently?
2: Oh, the berries are really consistent as being a, a food source, and that's pretty much almost every tribe that I've ever talked to is that's that's a they all eat berries, and that makes sense. It's out in nature, and there's usually if there's one bush, there's twenty, so it's got plenty of it. And deer is probably the most common. Um, animal that they mention um that's uh that they eat but occasionally i get if it's not deer then it would be fish fish is pretty up there as being a uh, uh, something that tribes have remarked about seeing and being careful where they fish because there'll be one area that's for them and one area that are for tribal members and you just don't go over to where the bigfoot does his work or his gathering or his fishing because it'll, it just causes problems
1: are you talking like salmon and steelhead, or, or like the? It can indigenous? be anything.
2: It's just any any fish.
1: How how they fishing? Like just grabbing them in the creeks, Is, or Are they swimming after them? Like what do they say?
2: Well, the the few that I've heard of that are here locally, most of the ones that I've heard of are up further north, like in your area. Um, mm. But around here, they've actually seen uh, Bigfoots laying on the on their stomachs. There's a story about um, a Bigfoot lying on its stomach and putting its hand into uh, the lake. In, in fishing that way. So, and so that wouldn't surprise me. I and mean, then they're super fast. So it wouldn't, wouldn't stun me at all if they're able to just sit in a pool or next to a pool and just wait for the fish to come by and then just go boop, pop it out.
0: If we're only that easy for me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I think they have more patience than we do because, you know, we, we want satisfaction now and, you know, Bigfoot, that's the only food he's going to get. So he's willing to wait it out to get something to eat.
0: Good point. Yeah, I I spoke to a witness on the podcast actually that you know aired last week, Um, and he said that he one came down out of the woods and he was on this one side of the snag and this thing was on the other and he never saw it. he saw it eventually, but he didn't see it at that point. And he he estimated I think it was like five or ten minutes that he waited there before he left, and like that thing was just standing I guess on the other side doing absolutely nothing. Um, In five or ten minutes, I don't think that's anything for a Sasquatch. They will outpatience you every single time. Because humans, you know, we think, like, I'm starting to be impatient. That must mean I'm being patient, you know, and then that's about the end of it. You know, you tolerate that for a few minutes and you give up. But these things will sit around or just stand around or, dr- or
1: slink around for 20, 30, 40 minutes, I think sometimes. Just and sometimes you don't I know have. that they left. Like they, like you like walk over there and like you heard them, you know, crunching, crunch, you know, walking up and boom, boom and big heavy footfalls. And you're sitting there like 20, 30, 40 minutes and you, you'll look over there like, like where'd it go? It's, it just slipped away. Yeah. Now,
0: now, Kathy, you mentioned the speed of these things a few moments later, uh, a few moments ago. Um, and I know that is from that's from firsthand observing these things. You, you've seen their speed. Um, can you tell us about the encounters and more importantly, the sightings, the actual visual observations you've had of these animals?
2: Sure. Um, So, you know, it's funny when I I became uh, an anthropologist because of Bigfoot. So I I was heavily influenced by Legend of Boggy Creek and everybody's probably heard that story. And so it seems kind of ironic that it took forever to have a sighting. But it was in 2012, May, and we had been, Bob and I had been invited to uh, go to an area called Area X and probably... People familiar with um, the NAWAC have heard of X before. And uh, they had asked us to come down and check this place out because they had so much activity going on. They just really wanted an outsider view of what was happening there. And so Bob and I decided we'd uh, make a make it into a vacation. And we drove out there. And that is a long way from California to Oklahoma. Woo! But, you know, we, we have family and um Texas. So we thought then on the way back, we'll just go hang with them for a while and then head back. So, um, or it was the other way around that time. I don't remember. Sometimes we go to X first, then go to family. Sometimes we go to family first and then into X. I think that was what we did. I think we went family first and then to X. And, uh, so, uh, we got there, um, and we were a team of five of us. There was, I believe there was two people already there. And then we drove in with Brian Brown, and. Got there on, I believe, a Sunday, and it was the most boring Sunday in the history of Sundays. And then the next day, my entire life changed. And it started fairly early, but we were there's four cabins there, and uh, something had been throwing rocks on the tin roofs. And every time it happened, the four guys would run over there and, you know, play, play the game of, what through the rock and where is it now? Kind of thing. And the second they get over there, then a rock would hit another cabin, and they run over there to that one. And I did it a couple of times, but then I was just like, "This is, you know, way too much energy for me in this hot weather to, to be running around, chasing rocks, you know." And so, uh, I stood there. And there's a longer part of the story, and I, I don't need to go into that. But but essentially, they finally came back, and uh, we're they're exhausted, and so we're all sitting around and like a semicircle around this. Uh, fire pit but it was wasn't didn't have a fire going because it was way too warm for that and um i'm looking down what we a place we call the bottleneck and essentially this this location is really super dense with vegetation there's green briar on the ground there's poison uh i guess it would be sumac back there but it's just this godforsaken. Hell hole that that is just difficult to maneuver anyway but the bottleneck was one area that is it, it must have been an old road that had mostly not mostly overgrown but that the vegetation was starting to come back and the grasses were there but it was fairly open so it has at least the next tree isn't right up against your face you know it's you have some space to walk so we're sitting in this this semicircle, and um, I'm the one that has the view, perfect view down the bottleneck. But Bob's right next to me, and he's got a view. And Brian Brown, and and we're all kind of in a straight line there, and then it's curved by uh, Mark McClurkin and uh, Ken Stewart. Mark goes, "I hear something walking," and we're like, "Oh, it's probably that stupid fox that keeps coming around," and we give him scraps when we shouldn't give him scraps, but we thought it was that. And then all of a sudden, I see. Two Bigfoot walking along the edge of this um, bottleneck and and the the mountainside comes down to that bottleneck. So it gets steep from there. And they're, you know, walking along the edge of it. And I, you know, oh, my God, you know, I'm just like so super excited. So I jump up, I point at them and I go, there they are. And I started running at them. And so Bob and uh, Mark and Brian all see the same thing that I do. So I, as I run at them, they turn and head up that hillside like they were on bungees. I mean, it's the fastest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. They were just went, woof, and then they were gone. And it was just like, you know, what, where did they go? What happened? And it was like, like, if I was a ghost hunter, I would have thought I just saw ghosts. That's how fast they were. And that's, you know, a hillside of of you know rocks and down trees and this green briar and everything else they got to get through and they just did it like it was nothing like there was no obstacle at all and they had been rather loud quote unquote coming towards us and when they went up that hillside it was it was as quiet as you could even imagine it was like like they were walking on air it was that that quiet and um, I I always thought maybe they were heading towards a shed to get behind the shed so they'd get a better look at us when we had come back. I don't think they realized that the boys had already come back. And so um, basically what I, you know, I didn't, they, they were all dark brown or black. They looked exactly like Patty from the PG film and that's about the didn't get any facial detail but when it I then was close enough that when they went up the hill I got a very very good look at the big one uh I don't I think I mentioned that but there was a small one and a big one um and the big one had the most powerful thighs I've ever seen on an animal and and a very powerful muscly bottom and so just all muscle and it was just like you know, no wonder. I mean, they're built for speed. And they're built for that environment to go up and down those hills like it was nothing. And so, you know, I was I was greatly intimidated. And you know, just at, the, at their speed, I don't think I was necessarily intimidated by the muscle part because I expected that. But I certainly did not expect them to be that fast. I used to make fun of those people who said, "Well, I was driving my car, and the Bigfoot was." running along, uh, uh, along the car and I was going 40 miles an hour and I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, but, Oh yeah. I, I truly believe that now.
0: Was that the last you saw of them that trip?
2: Oh no, that, that whole trip was a nightmare. It was, uh, the day we left, we drove out, um, we sat at the, when that, uh, the, the road hits a, a, at least a major road. Um, we just sat there for a few minutes and we looked at each other and we looked at Brian Brown and we were all like, we felt like we had just been in Vietnam. I mean, it was just, it was constant, just barrage of rocks, you know, hearing funny sounds, uh, seeing eyes shine. Um, I heard the that gibberish from the Sierra sounds one morning. It was just, it was constant. It was nonstop the entire week. It was was amazing, but tiring and everything else, every emotion you could possibly have all wrapped into one. I like to tease Bob about um, that if instead of those marriage counseling things that people do, you send them down to X and they're either going to stay together or they're going to break up based on each other's behavior on how they react to what's going on you know did you push the your wife down to, so you could run <laughs> or did you jump in front of her to protect her because that's you know it's it's gonna figure it out right there because it's 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 not the place for faint of heart
1: you guys um you made a cool video that you showed at a bigfoot event i was at isn't that on your website the north american wood ape conservancy website isn't there a video that you guys made of showing area actually like, from drone
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. If you wanna if you wanna uh see that, you can see the drone photo that shows how dense it is there and there the what we call the the Wachita monograph, which is a combination of all the stuff that's happened down there for every team. So we we basically go in there as teams starting usually in May and we usually end somewhere September, October. And so that's a combination of I think two thousand and eleven maybe 2015 or 16 of all the different things. And there's a bunch of sound files. So you can hear some of the sounds that we've gotten, including some of that gibberish or samurai sounds, um, as well as different rock events and those kinds of things on it. It's, you know, wood knocks, the, uh, all the other sounds. I can't remember every single file that's there, but they definitely for, if you're interested in it, it's there. Yeah.
1: For yeah. For those listening that uh, wanted to know more about area X, Matt Pruitt, our extraordinary producer, on episode forty, he spoke about it. Yeah, and we'll also be having more people
0: from the North American Wood Ape Conservancy as guests in the near future. But back to Kathy. So, Kathy, was that your first really good sighting, or is that your only really good sighting, or what, where, how does that how does that uh, pan out in your bigfooting career so far?
2: Um, that was my first sighting that I that I knew what I was looking at. I guess. I mean, there's probably all kinds of strange things that have happened to me. I mean, I heard that samurai sound when I was uh, on the Sequoia National Forest, you know, 15 years before, but I didn't know what it was, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. we, you can't, you know, oh, that's what that was now, you know? So, but uh, yeah, that was my first sighting. But then the next year, Bob and I, you know, changed both of us. So we talked about that event um, uh, all the way home. And then we have this good friend who's a psychiatrist who just loves Bob to death. I don't know if I think he's too fond of me, but, Um, he asked us to come to his office in San Francisco after it happened. And he asked us about it and we just downloaded, we just went, you know, every single thing that happened and his eyes were so big and he, it scared him so bad. He, uh, we weren't even there like 30 minutes. He said, Oh, look at the time I got to go. You guys don't have to go. You just, you just, just lock up to my office when you leave. I got to go. I got to go. And he got up out of his office, left went across the street, got in his car and left. And we were like, well, wait a minute. Why did he do that for it? And it was because he couldn't handle it. You know, we we just went Pleh! and that was probably too much for anybody uh, to be fair. But
0: it shifted his paradigm a bit, perhaps
2: um, he didn't talk to Bob for uh, you'll have to ask Bob about that. But it took a long time for him to contact Bob again. It, it was, you know, I think it just blew his mind that here you have two very credible people that he's known for uh, a significant period of time telling him about. All this stuff, and he knew we weren't crazy, and we knew we were telling the truth. And so I, I think it's, it just hits you in a way that you just don't know what to do with it because it's, you know, it, there's only two choices. Well, I guess there could have been a third. I guess we could have been hoaxed, but, you, you know, it's Bob and Bob and I are either liars or we're telling the truth. And, and that's, you know.
0: And he knew you well enough that the lying option wasn't really, didn't, didn't make sense.
2: No, we wouldn't drive all the way to San Francisco to pull, lie to somebody. That's not, not our, not our, drill of the day to drive to San Francisco at all. But um so anyway, so the next year we decided that we wanted that experience so bad again that I he was gonna go for three weeks without me so that I was here running the house. And then I when he came back, I would go for three weeks and he would run the house. And so he went first, didn't have much happened at all it was too I think it was really just too early in the season, and so uh, then I went, and every three all of those three weeks were just intense, and so um the first week I was there, um that would have been ooh I think it was June, I don't remember now, but um i was we were sitting on the porch there, there's a porch that looks down the bottleneck, and I was sitting on the porch, and everybody else was sitting um on the ground and it was supposed to be the girls week but brian brown came because he can't stand not you know hanging out with us cool girls so since i'm higher than everybody else i can i'm seeing looking over everybody's head and i look up and i'm looking at a tree and the tree start the branch starts moving and so it's not a small branch it's it's you know a pretty significant branch but i could see it's vibrating like you know like how a squirrel does when it's Going to go to the end of it and get an acorn or a nut or something. And the next thing I know, I see this uh, for all intensive purposes a baby chimpanzee, no tail, flat back, walking along this limb, you know, using its hands and its feet, gets to the end of the branch and then jumps over to another tree. And I thought to myself, wow, look at that baby chimpanzee. And I went, Kathy how stupid could you be? That was not a chimpanzee, a baby chimpanzee. And so I said, oh, I, look what I just saw. And so we all ran over there. Uh, and then of course we could see where it was moving through the rest of the trees. And then later that week, uh, uh, another member of the team saw the this, this same baby. That was pretty exciting. And it was just like, but here I am. I've already seen Bigfoot. I'm going there to see Bigfoot. And the first thing I can think of when I see it is a chimpanzee, I mean, it's just like, your mind is just not programmed sometimes to just have reality you know enter into its brain and then you know so but then the next uh and other people have since also seen um the baby there uh later on several years later, not so much a baby anymore but um and then my last physical sighting was uh the next year after that, so two thousand and fourteen I was the last one to be up that morning, and so I had come out onto now the front porch is where I, I had come out on the porch. I was standing there and the guys were um Bob was with me and Ken Stewart and several others that usually go. Uh They were um just standing there, you know, nobody had made breakfast yet and they're just, you know, drinking coffee and talking and, and Ken Stewart's talking to me. And I, and I like to say that he's seen people, more people see Bigfoot than he has ever seen a Bigfoot because he's always looking at the other direction of everybody else. And so can, he's talking to me and I'm looking over his head and I see basically in front of the the, the cabins are arranged in North, South, East, and West. And, and the cabin we were at was the North cabin. And so the South cabin, I'm, that's what I'm looking at. I see this gigantic gray Bigfoot walk through the, the foliage opening, and I can see him from about his shoulder down to probably what would be his knee, is, is what I would guess. And I see him turn and start to walk down to the creek. And I told the guys, Oh, there's a bigfoot over there. I just saw it. And they, they run over there. And I was going, I'm not moving because I'm going to stay exactly at what where where I could see because I'll never get back to the exact same spot again so that we can you know get a picture get this measured out everything scientifically of what it is that I saw. And so they ran over there and they found where it had definitely gone down this little footpath and then across the creek and then went across the other way and already out of sight by that time. And and so they came back and we did a video of what I saw, where it was located and then I had Bob go I pointed out where I saw it and I had Bob go over to that location and stand in that location. And this gray thing had filled that entire opening. There was just no, it, it, there was no daylight on any side. I mean, it was just gigantic. And Bob was like this little tiny, little little nothingness in comparison to him. And he's six foot tall. And so I imagine this thing was eight, if if not bigger. But it just was just such a eye-opening because we had heard of old gray before. And that's what he's known a, as around... The area because people have seen him before, but he's he's definitely the the alpha male um, in that area for sure. I mean, I can't imagine any anything challenging him.
1: You know, just to jump back a little bit, I want to go back. You're okay. talking about seeing the baby chimpanzee-looking one. It's uh, I was down in Louisiana a year and a half ago where I saw that giant one. But um, we were down there. We were trying to film the baby one because the the baby was coming around. It would. They had a uh, audio recorders out. And the baby was coming in. It would come in to get the snacks, like the Cracker Jacks and whatever they put out. And this is down below uh, Boggy Creek on the Louisiana side. And uh, it would come in and it would be there for 10 minutes. And you'd hear the adults come in and go, oh, you know, like, you know, and they'd like discipline it. And then when they they realized that he was out there with recorders and a camera, they never saw the baby again. Like, they let it run around. They let it run around for a while, though. Like, it was... It, it was, you know, it was the size of a four-year-old human, so it was a young Sasquatch because they're, you know, obviously bigger than we are. Similar ages. And I was going to ask you, how fast is that one growing? That you guys saw the baby one you saw. You said, I think it was 2012. You saw so it, so eight years. I'm going nine years this summer. How big? How big did that thing grow? Like how fast?
2: Um, well, like, for example, the the first two that I saw was probably. The, I always consider it that it was a. Uh, older sibling sister who had to take care of her bratty little brother because she was roughly, uh, you know, somewhere maybe six feet. wasn't wasn't filled out, was fairly thin, you know, kind of thing. And the little one, you know, maybe half that size or so. Um, and And I always say that because when they turned to run, she didn't pay any attention to him. She just ran. And so I would think a mother's instinct would be to make sure that her child would go first and she'd run behind him but that's not at all but i don't know that to be cer- certain but the baby chimpanzee was the, about the size of, of of a shelby dog i don't know if you know what that size is so not very big i mean it's pretty pretty small but but the equivalent of you know still light enough uh, but powerful enough to be able to run through the trees and and be careful versus you know obviously a bigfoot grown bigfoot would wouldn't the branches wouldn't be able to hold their way and then the one that when they saw uh well you know to be fair i don't actually know that it was the same one that the that uh was seen a couple of years later but they were those were bigger just a little bit bigger but they were there was more than one at the t- at the time and that story is in the the monograph if you want to read it so that, i i don't think they grow very fast i guess is the point of
1: I don't, I don't think they caught their young ones because um, I don't know if you heard me tell this story. But on the Hickory Apache Reservation, there was twin uh, Bigfoot seen with a large female. They said the female was like seven and a half, eight foot, which is huge for a female one. But uh, they were seeing twins that were the size of ten year old boys, and they were identical twins. Then one night uh, there was a big. I've told this story on this on the show before, on this podcast before, but anyways, there was a huge dog. You know the rez has packs of dogs roaming around. So one pack. Was fighting the other pack and they come out of the house, get the hoses out, you know, they're breaking it up. And they said there's about fifteen, twenty dogs just, and they're all but they're all going after just one dog, and it was kind of wedged underneath the car in the carport. And so they come out there and they're breaking all the dogs up. There's just one big Rottweiler that they couldn't get off the other little dog, and they finally pulled it off. And this ten-year-old, uh, ten-year-old boy-sized Sasquatch stands up just torn to pieces with blood everywhere, like you see flesh wounds, like ripped flesh and it stumbles off <clears throat> towards the mountain, and sent it in the in the um, dark, just thirty feet away, thirty five feet away, was the mom and the other one, and they didn't even wait for it. They just turned and started. They, they just abandoned it, like like if the dogs jumped it again, and then the big rot jumped on the dog and grabbed it by the neck and shoulder and tore it down. And she just looked back and kept walking casually away. She didn't, you know, like a bear or a human, they'd come in and you know fight to the death.
2: Yeah. But that's a very ones. interesting story because yeah cuz i guess all i have is observations that we know of of chimpanzees in the wild how protective they are of their babies and so since we're human and we're closely related to chimps and we believe somehow bigfoot is related to primates in that realm somewhere mm-hmm. you would think that instinct would be with them as well. But, it, you know, we don't really know. We don't yeah. have any well, like
1: Glenn Thomas citing and people I've talked to, the, you know, how the young one, like the, like the toddler size and your real young ones, will keep the mother between them and the adult males. Like they don't <laughs> trust the adult males. They stay away from them.
2: Well, if you look at the pictograph, the Harry Man pictograph, mom's in between dad and the baby.
1: Yeah.
2: So, I mean, that's, uh, that's probably a fair asses- assessment, but, you know, and I didn't even know after the, I ha- had I thought about it, I always wondered after we saw the the baby, w- was mom nearby? And I have no idea. We didn't even think to look because, you know, well, we, we figured we didn't, it's, it's long gone now. So if mom was there anyway, she's keeping track of it. But now that I think about it, maybe it was on its own. and It was just doing what it does. And, if he doesn't come back in 10 minutes, and I guess we'll go look for him. I, you know, who knows? That would be because
1: yeah, they've never, they never lost one to us. You know what I mean? Like, no one's caught one yet. So they put they're not that. I mean, I'm sure they're concerned about, you know, they know the young ones are dumb, whatever, do stupid stuff, but they're not like super overly concerned they're keeping like a thing on a short leash because they're seen by themselves, you know, with nothing immediately near them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thought. I, I hadn't really put two and two together, or anyone, we won't know until we get an opportunity to observe that, like how we can observe chimpanzees in the wild, then we'll know for sure that they, that once they give birth, you know, if you're pretty much a teenager and just go do your thing. Just make sure you show up for dinner or something like that. Who knows?
1: Yeah. It's going to be interesting. I can't, that's all the stuff that just drives me nuts. Like I, I want to know now, I know we'll know someday I just hope it's in my lifetime.
2: Yeah. And hopefully we do. I mean that, cause there's a lot of unanswered questions and with all these wildfires and Plus timber harvesting, and I'm not against timber harvesting. Of course, I work for the U.S. Forest Service, but eventually, that environment, um, what is suitable habitat for them, isn't going to exist anymore because trees don't grow that fast. And it's pretty clear to me that they need water, they need food, they need um, protection. And protection, shelter, comes from them being able to stay hidden in the woods. And if they can't stay hidden, or you know, they can't you know keep away from humans. You know what happens to that population, and so it's it's very um, concerning. And I, w- I would hope, I, and I say it all the time, I hopefully next year, hopefully next year. And we don't even know what the effect of COVID has been on those populations. You know, and we we tried to keep that in mind with the operations that went on in Area X this year. And so you know, that'd be horrifying for you know trying to prove the animal's real, and then we get it sick and it dies, you know, of a of a pandemic. And so it's it's. It's hard to know what is the right tool of getting this evidence, but pretty much everything outside of footprints, outside of some some excellent video in my or film, in my view, of the PG film, you know, it, we're going to have to have a body because science just doesn't accept um, anything else up to this point.
0: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. During your time at Area X, you've actually seen four individuals that are distinct from one another. Um, Do you have, do you you guys as a group, the NAWAC, do you have um, any idea how many individuals you're dealing with in the area?
2: We don't, but we do have a good handle on um, different colors and sizes that have been seen. And so we, we have a general idea of how many there might be. And I should also mention that same week. Um, that I, we saw the two, Bob saw a a different one, another one that he saw that was red, was shiny, uh, you know, had a reddish coat, like a, um, whatever that dog is that's got oh,
0: like the Irish setter or something like everybody the, everyone always compares the Irish setter color to the yeah. Sasquatch thing.
2: And, and so that's technically, you know, a whole nother one. So within just that very short week, that's at least three individuals. And then later that week, there was another incident where a very dark, mean black one bum rushed one of our field members. And so that's four just right there. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think in a lot of ways with some of them we may have seen when they're younger and now they're bigger, Um, still the same individual, but, you know, just different sizes. There's definitely uh, multiple sightings of more than one at a time. And so um, that we're about roughly the same height and the same fur color. And so, you know, a a group, a troop, I don't know what we've all decided a, a, a family level of, bigfoots are called but there's probably I would say at least 10 and there's probably two. probably that's what i would wow. guess and it's a dominant male an alpha don't know if he hangs around with the family or not but there's a dominant male there there's probably the whole range of age groups and probably at least two breeding females is what i would guess but you know it's hard to know it's it is really hard to know but
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I would never put you on the spot. You got to tell me now, but like, I will put you on the spot. Like, what's your best guess? So th- that's close enough for me.
2: Yeah, that, that would be my best guess. Well, one thing that would maybe interest people is the Tag 7 paper where uh, oh, yeah. we were able to put um, – and Bob's better at telling this because it's too technical for my brain to handle – um, essentially, we were able to put a movement sensor on something that we believed to be a Bigfoot because we had it hanging up very high um, up in uh, what we call these these trees. We put a string trap on them. And when it breaks uh, the trap, it would deposit this tracker that is imbe- embedded into a burr. You know, one of those things that get, you know, I'd hate to get it in my hair because then I just have to cut my hair off because you'll never get it out. And they were able to track that uh, for almost a a year, almost a year, and they were able to follow where it went, um, where the signals were coming back um, for all that time. And it really did look like they were traveling in what we call a seasonal round, that it was spending much more time in certain areas at certain seasons in that area. And so why, you know, we don't know. But again, obviously an animal moves it's going to have to go find its food versus food coming to you so there must be something in certain areas that are more valuable to to that animal um than in other seasons and so we have noticed that and so that's a very interesting paper to read if you guys are interested in that
1: yeah we've we've read it and pru went over with us when he was on here but do you guys have any local i know you guys got guys from texas but do you have anything like local Oklahoma, like field biologists that know that area that would maybe have more insight for you?
2: Oh yeah, we have, we do. We do. Um, I don't have, don't know if those conversations have happened or not, but uh, Alton Higgins is, is a local. And so he's very familiar with the location and we have um, other people who are, are very knowledgeable of that, that live right, right close there. And, and, you know, it seems to be maybe the same as what bears, what, their kind of movements are and where they're at, at at the same time, but it's hard to speculate, you know, it could, you know, one hibernates and the other one doesn't. So, you know, how similar is that? I I don't, I don't know, but we, we do have locals, but I I don't, I couldn't tell you right now that it's helped us get anything more than what we've already gotten. So.
1: Right. I thought, I thought those guys were all Texas. I didn't know there were locals right there.
2: Oh yeah. We have, we have people from all walks of life and from many, many, many states.
1: Of course, and again,
0: this is a North American Wood Ape Conservancy. And if you want to, any of our audience wants to look up any of their projects or you want to read about this tracking thing, because these guys are pioneers, they're the first guys to think of it and do it. And they pulled it off. That's the most ridiculous thing about it. It actually probably worked. Um, I mean, the only gray area there is, is it indeed a Sasquatch? And there's plenty of reasons to think that they did, in fact, get a tagging GPS device on a Sasquatch. Um, if you want to read about any of these projects or uh, read that, that in-depth stuff um, in the monograph, it's all on woodape.org. Look it up, it's like woodape.org under projects or research or something like that, if I remember correctly. But um, yeah, check that stuff out because uh, this is a group. I mean, we keep having people from this group on the podcast for a reason. Um, they're really kind of the vanguard for the what's scientifically happening in the field right now. So.
1: And they definitely have the best podcast. And Pruitt, our producer, is the host of that one. And I just listened to uh, two of theirs last two uh, this week, and it blows it blows me away how much how professional and scientific and and the, you guys have raised that group has raised the bar. They're for sure the leading leading the charge on the scientific front.
2: Any time you can interject science, is do it. It's, it doesn't take any more time to do it. it doesn't take any money to do it scientifically. Just record what you're seeing, record what you're doing, the day, the time, hopefully the weather, what your observations are. So because, you know, a month could pass and you could say, so I'm never going to forget what happened and a month passes and you can't even remember exactly what time of day it was. And so I always encourage that. And But anyway, but we do, we, it's a requirement to be scientific in the field. We always have somebody who takes notes. You have somebody who's, you know, that's their one job. You have somebody who has this specific job because we want to do it. Um, As scientifically as possible.
0: Yeah, and I'd like to point out, just because I am an advocate of the science as well, um, is that it doesn't take like formal scientific training either. You know, I mean, Kathy has a degree. Is it anthropology or is there something for archaeology, Kathy? What do you have?
2: Uh, my my degrees are in anthropology. Archaeology is a discipline of anthropology.
0: Of anthropology. Okay. See, I don't even know that, right? But people look up to me as like a scientific voice. And I, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, man, but I have a degree in jazz guitar. <laughs> you know? So, like, it's not – I'm not exactly the best – I mean, I, I advocate for it. I'm not – The poster child for it, but I advocate for it. It doesn't take a formal education to put a ruler down by an impression in the ground. It doesn't take a formal education in a science to keep a journal of where you go and what you find there get a spiral bound notebook man they cost a buck at the back to school sales you know and like uh, and the best bigfooters i know who have the most evidence to show for it they write down this date this is where they went and this is what they found or didn't find or this is unusual or whatever it takes two or three lines for a day sometimes in the average bigfooting day when you don't find much everybody can do it no one has an excuse
1: You know, I want to get out the science tip just for one second, even though we're talking about how great it is. But, Kathy, your story, your creepy story about camping out with the women, I think it was all women, and you were on a work trip, uh, backpacking, and you Uh had something show up at your tent.
2: Oh, yeah, that's a good story.
1: I love that one.
2: You want me to tell it? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, in the U.S. Forest Service, um, we have this program, and it's throughout the United States. It's called Passport and Times. And what it is, is a, it's a public program for anybody out there who want to come be an archaeologist for a week or a couple days or whatever it is that the, the event is for. And so we used to do it, those a lot on this forest, but of course, the, the COVID, I'm gonna, that's a now a, a, a formal name of something, the COVID. So this one event, um, we were had invited the public and it's at no cost whatsoever um, to come and help us record arbor glyphs in Barn Meadow. And an arbor glyph, glyph is a drawing carved into aspen trees. and they're usually done by the Basques uh, sheep herders back in the 1800s. And so we had another full tell everybody where it happened. It was at the Niagara OHV campground and we had shut the campground down so that we have, you know our choice of whatever campsite we wanted. And so in order to handle that many, uh, well, it wasn't that many. It was probably 15 people from the public. Um, all my other district archaeologists uh, helped run, run the show. And so and those were two women and uh, a, a man. And so the first day we get there, it ran Thursday through Sunday. So you get there by noon, get all set up, and then we go out to meadow to start and then people leave you know Sunday at noon so that's the usually how those go and so the first night um I we the archaeologists the forest service people we had set up our tents not too close to each other but we're away from the other campers so that uh they can enjoy their time camping and and us not you know we didn't want anybody feeling you know weirded out that the, the fuzz was there watching everything that they did you know so we wanted them to feel comfortable (laughs)
0: the fuzz showing your age
2: (laughs) and we don't wear our uniforms or anything because that really that really freaks people out so um the next morning we had gotten up and we the us as arcs would meet first to kind of line out where are we going you know what are we doing who's taking who kind of thing and uh one of my archaeologists steve marsh who has since passed away unfortunately um, came up to me and he pulled me aside and he goes, Kathy, uh, there was something in the creek last night. Something was moving boulders. And I'm like, what? And I, in our cows, most of them have bells on them because they do They're cows and they all follow the other cows. And I said, well, did you hear any bells or anything like that? And he goes, no. And I said, did you go over there and look to see if you could see anything? Cause yeah, I don't, I don't see anything. I didn't see any prints. I didn't see anything. And I was like, huh, well, that's weird. And I said, well, you know, Let's see if it happens again. You know, we didn't think anything of it. So we go back to out to the barn meadow. and We do our thing for the day and we come back and, you know, of course, we eat and everything. and We go to bed. And so I'm laying in my my tent and I start hearing something walking towards my tent. And uh, I could just hear because the little pebbles on the ground, you know, they're moving and, and something's crunching them and I can't remember, I have told the story now, and I think pretty certain this is what, how the order of it went. But I went, Lisa, is that you? Because I thought it was Lisa coming to my tent for that there was something wrong. And so then, uh, and this is this is like two o'clock in the morning or so. And so I lean my head back. And I don't know why in particular, I looked up, but I look up and I see Five fingers touch the top of my tent, so in bed and you know pushing in, and then it goes from the top of my tent all the way down to the bottom. And I was like, "Oh man, I don't know what's going on here, but that's you know unacceptable." And so I get out of my sleeping bag, unzip my tent, grab my flashlight, and I go over to the side of the tent and I go, "Ah, got you." Nothing there. And I was like, "What?" So I run over to the other side of my tent and I go, "Ha, got you." And there's nothing there. And I'm like. All right, Kathy, you just made, you know, you had some kind of weird dream. Go back to bed. Not a big deal. And so I zip my tent up and I had just set the flashlight down and got into my sleeping bag. I was about to zip it up when all of a sudden I hear this, bam, right next to my head. Like something, you know, had just jumped and gone down. And then I realized that it was in the tree above my tent. And I was just like, uh... Uh, okay, now that's really weird. Why would somebody tricking me go through the effort of getting up in the tree so I wouldn't see him? And I, of course, never thought about looking in the tree. I thought it was just one a human being silly. So the next morning... We're um, all standing around talking and, and I can see Lisa coming at me like barreling down. She's got her fist pumping and you can tell she's mad. And I'm like, oh, God, you know what happened? And so she comes up to me and she goes, I just want to let you know that I don't think what you did last night was funny at all. And I was like, uh, OK, and I said, uh, I didn't do anything. I don't know what you're talking about. What happened? And she goes, you, you didn't stand outside my tent and go, Lisa. And I went, no. I did not. And so then I told him what happened to me. And we were just like, oh, my God, you know, what are we going to do? Are these people in danger? What have we gotten ourselves into? And so it was just like, but we can't just pull up and go because we were expecting the professor. um, It was an expert in Basque carvings to be there that that day. He was coming all the way from from Reno. And so we were like, well, you know, there's nothing we can do about this. It's too late to, to pull out. And so anyway, we finished that day, uh, nothing else happened from there. And the, our volunteers left on Sunday, like nothing had ever happened. And so, I, you know, I can't swear to you what that was, but it certainly was creepy and weird and I, unlike anything I've ever experienced before. And I've camped a lot in my lifetime. And so I've never, ever had somebody touch my tent in the middle of the night. So that's my story.
0: Well, the Lisa thing too, that's a the Lisa, that's creepy.
2: Yeah, it was super creepy
1: but it didn't sound like it didn't sound like a personal exactly right it sounded like she, almost like a pawning.
2: she thought it was me
1: oh
0: she so did a higher oh. pitch
1: voice then, yeah. I guess. That-
2: yeah she she clearly thought it was me because she was after me and i don't even really know why i never did ask her why in the world did you think it was me i i, I could just looked at her like oh I, I didn't do that and she knew i was telling the truth and it was just like what is going on you know and and our initial, we didn't think of Bigfoot, we didn't think of anything other than initially was the safety of these people that um, we had there in volunteering, you know, did we put them, is there some kind of a strange serial killer out here or something? And, you know, we didn't know what to think at that point. And so we just never really noodled it through until later. And she then, I remember like maybe a week or two later, she she came and to my office and she goes, you know was really bothering me and and at the time then she had told us about this other creepy thing that had happened to her not far from then that not far from that place years later but um you know in the gist of it you know I had and it's really funny because that was in August of 2003 and then I present at that symposium in September of 2003 and I and it took me forever I never really put it together on my own and it's just Funny how those things happen, but but Lisa had had a a really creepy event happen to her uh, about a mile from that location, like the year before, as I recall, or two years before. So probably probably all related.
0: Yeah, I I think these things are much more like parrots than we give them credit for. You know, Um, I think that they hear lots of noises and imitate lots of different sounds, everything from people's names to uh, other non organic sounds. Like I can always come back to. Yeah, sirens. Um, people always say the owls. You know, the eight hundred pound owl. Like right? that motif in Bigfoot mythology. And also, um, not to say it's not real, just that that's always tossed around. But also that, like, car doors slamming. Yeah. Like, What's up with that? Like, why are they? Why are they even? I, I'm confident that they do that. We've I've personally heard car doors slamming where I'm absolutely one hundred percent. Sure. There are no cars nearby. Um, I've had expeditioners on my trips do the same thing. Um, yeah. Other people have told me they've heard car doors slamming. Like what's up with this stuff? Like these things are, I think parents, basically you give them a couple sounds repeatedly and they're probably going to give it back to you at some point. unless must are in a bad mood.
2: Yeah. And I, and I had said Lisa, but then what, how did whatever it was, know which tent was Lisa's? Yeah. So that, that's yeah. always been what the, and of course, you know we were there in the morning and there in the afternoon, and maybe that's an observation that it picked up. I don't, I don't know, but but yeah, the door slamming, and that's a that's a good one because that we've heard that multiple times in it when you know darn well you locked your car and there's nothing. But I am also slightly amused by the thought that he's looking for M and M's or something that you dropped, and I I, I <laughs> at both.
1: <laughs> yeah, we've heard that car door slamming all over North America. I mean, I've heard it way out. There's no way there's a car. And it's odd. And also, have you heard this one, Kelly? people talking about, or have you heard it yourself? It sounds like someone grabs a piece of sheet metal and just like something super strong, just tearing apart metal.
2: Yep. We've also heard the weird boulder moving sound um, mm-hmm. multiple times. And that is so hard to explain because you're like, okay, I know you're big and I know you're strong, but in a creek, you're not. you're not looking for squirrels that I can think of. So what in a creek bed under a boulder would be useful to you. So is it is it a a sound that you're making on purpose? Or are you really moving boulders? All right. Well, well, Kathy,
0: uh, we're getting kind of towards the end of our interview here. Um, I understand that you're on a TV show that's kind of airing right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. It's called The Proof is Out There. And it's on uh, the History Channel at 7 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on Tuesdays, and it is a show that looks has experts or people who think they're experts look at uh, video or photographs that are purported to be encrypted and then render their opinion on it. Or it could be UFOs or other strange phenomena that's out there. And um, I'm extremely pleased with it. It's very professional. They're willing to call a hoax a hoax. They're willing to say, "Yeah, this." person thought this but this is what i really think and so i'm really uh particularly pleased with it and uh you are also on it cliff as well as yeah i was gonna, I was gonna say
0: I, i'm on that too but i haven't had the guts to watch it because i'm always afraid how they're gonna edit me but if you say it's good i'm gonna go with it
2: yeah you look great and, and you sound intelligent so that's it's perfect
1: yeah they, for bc deck when, when i did it i'm not sure if it's the same show it's the same concept might, i can't remember the title but they tried to make me the dummy that believed it, like I believed the the hoax, and then had someone else smart come on and straighten me out. And I was like, "Dude, this is fake. Like that's not real, you know." And anyways, blah blah. blah. So at least you guys have to be smart. <laughs> yeah, that's our
0: loss in life, Bobo. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, with that, <laughs> with that, Kathy, I want to thank you once again for spending the time with Bob's and I on the podcast here. It is nice to reconnect with you. Um, and maybe in the next couple of you know months or years, we can get out in the field again and do some field stuff. It'd be a lot of fun. And, uh, thank you so much for being a friend of ours, both of ours and particularly mine, you know, for such a long time, you have been a, a, a sincere, um, well, you have been a major influence in my life and, and, I say it almost every podcast, it seems, but I, I, there's a good reason to. Bigfoot is great, man, because this is one of those fields where your idols can become your friends, and you're one of those. I just want to thank you for coming on and spending some time with us.
2: Oh, that was so nice. Thank you very much. I, I had a good time. I'm glad to come back anytime you need me.
1: Oh, thank you, Kathy. Yeah, I can't believe it took us so long to get you on. I mean, we you're one of the big names, you know, but I always felt like, God, I don't want to bug her. So I'm so glad you came on and looking forward to interviewing your Wonderful husband Bob here coming up soon enough.
2: Oh, he's looking forward to to it too. So but thank Ooh. you too, Bo. You've been a good friend and Cliff's been a good friend for a very long time. I can I always know I can count on you if I need anything.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. All right, Kathy. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you. Have a good night.
1: You too. Okay, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in and we appreciate it. So if you like what you hear, please share, let people know about it. And until next week, keep it squatchy.